One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. The American Egg Board recently made it their absolute priority to make choline to be an urgent problem and essentially eggs to be the solution. And part of their story was to use advertorials to promote this message about choline being a nutrient of concern. And an advertorial is essentially a paid spot, which means as the buyer, you can write the content how you want it and have it look like an editorial in a magazine. And in these emails, they talk about using an egg ambassador to write the article. So it makes sense that you know, following these speeches, an article is published in a major journal whilst the USDA Dietary Guideline Committee are in the process of writing these new guidelines. Is choline something we should actually be concerned about? What does the science say? That's me. And this is a solo episode of The Proof Podcast. Hey friends, welcome back or 
For new listeners, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. If you are a regular listener, you probably have, or hopefully, hopefully you have, uh, seen that I've had the last few weeks off. I haven't published a new episode. I had published an episode every single week for 81 episodes. And a little while ago, I recorded a bunch of episodes with some super cool guests in the United States whilst I was visiting. And I decided that I would take some time off from recording new episodes to personally freshen up, recharge the batteries, but also more importantly, to, to get some perspective on the show, to look at the show from its infancy to where it has grown and to review it, to critique it, to, to work out what does the future direction of the Plant Proof podcast look like. And the single biggest driver and what was really spurring me on during this review was how can I continue to add the most value to you, the listener. So in a little bit, I'm going to to talk to you about sort of the first iteration of, of a slightly new direction, something that I'm going to add to the show, which I really hope that you enjoy. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm clearly your host on this show. So for the next little bit, you'll be with me and uh, hopefully you're in good hands. It's, it's my job, or at least I see it as my job, to, to help you navigate through all of the clutter, all of the confusion out there around nutrition and health and, and, and what we should be eating. I'm a qualified physiotherapist, also currently completing my master's in nutrition, which I am thoroughly enjoying. And I've been using this show for over a year, year and a half, to sit down with all sorts of guests from all over the world to delve not only into nutrition, but also to explore how we can together become more conscious in the way that we live. Beyond the podcast, I spend hours and hours each week diving into scientific papers to work out what these studies truly tell us. And then where possible, and this is what I'm trying to do, break that information down into bite-sized, palatable bits of information for you to understand and, and make sense of and, and use in your own life. And this, friends, really is the crux of Plant Proof. It's, it's why I started this show. It's why I created plantproof.com, where I regularly upload blogs and the Plant Proof social media accounts. I identified pretty early on that Although the, the headlines are super confusing, the science is actually very clear. But the problem is, unless you have some serious time on your hands or are trained in, in reading scientific literature, preferably both, it's very hard to, to not be subconsciously influenced by media headlines. And sadly, traditional media outlets do not have your health as their number one priority and they don't have my health as their number one priority, most of them anyway. We'll come back to this later in this episode when we dive into a few uh, recent media headlines. So that'll be the fun stuff in this episode that uh, I want to I want to cover with you because these headlines have been spread globally and, and, and rightly so people are concerned about these. So I think it's important that we talk about them together. So as I said, I've 
had two or three weeks off. So I want to, to take the opportunity in this episode to talk to you about that break, how I spent my time, some of these slightly new directions for the show, some things I've been working on, and and then I want to finish off by addressing those media headlines that I just referred to, which were recently published on choline and, and also vegetarians and risk of stroke. So first things first, this episode is different from all other episodes in that it's the first episode of the Plant Proof Podcast with no guest. Now, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll let you be the judge and hopefully you're not sick of my voice by the end of it. Going forward, I am introducing a solo episode, at least that's what I'm calling it, in between each guest episode on the Plant Proof Podcast. And I see these episodes as being very complementary to the guest episodes. I've really, I've really planned them out and planned out the themes based around the content that I am covering with guests and, and what, I, what I think will further add value to you, how we can dive deeper into some of these topics that I speak about with guests. In the guest episodes, I get to, to bring you into a conversation that I have with someone who I genuinely believe can help you and me both uh, become more informed, more inspired, and, and hopefully more aligned. And when I say alignment, and I've said this before, I mean becoming a living example of what our true core beliefs and values are. You know, some of these guests will challenge us to think about our opinions and our belief systems, and, and that's the idea, to, to be challenged and, and open to the idea of evolving as a human and, and seeing personal change as a positive. You know, I don't, I don't want to digress here, but often, often I hear people say, Ah, such and such has changed so much, like it's a bad thing. Perhaps one of their friends has stopped partying or, or, or drinking. You know, and I think in many circumstances, we can reframe that. Such and such has really grown. You know, rather than fearing change in ourselves or our friends, we need to be able to embrace it because, let's face it, there is a lot of people out there not living as their true selves. I can put my hand up, that was me. They're not terribly happy and we need to let them discover who they are, create a safe environment and support them. So that's the guest episodes. I was able to sit back and really work out what are those episodes about and they are about being open to change, being open to learning new things and embracing the fact that it's okay to unlearn and relearn. If you've been a long-time listener, you would be familiar with the types of guests that I've had, everything from specialised doctors like Dr. Will Bolsowitz and Alan Desmond, who, who talk in detail about gut health, to, to plant-powered athletes like Rich Roll, Nimoy Delgado, and that crazy guy on the, on the bike, Red Bull rider Patrick Seabase. That was a fun episode. In contrast, these solo episodes, they give me the opportunity to chat with you directly. An episode where 
I can dive deeper into common questions about nutrition, hopefully share some little nutrition nuggets or interesting learnings, get things off my chest, consolidate on information from the guest episodes, break down scientific papers, address anything that pops up in the media and and generally just be myself and share a bit more about what I am doing to hopefully inspire you to to keep learning, to keep asking questions and essentially to just keep bettering yourself. And this show, it's, it's not about being perfect. I am certainly not perfect. It's not about a label. It's not about being vegan. It's about being informed, being conscious of the decisions that we make and caring and ultimately living a happy life with good values. That's really all I want for you. So this episode, let me let me quickly break down what I want to cover in this very first solo episode, an agenda, so to speak. I need something to keep me on track or I could just end up waffling for an hour and we don't want that. In no particular order, today I am going to touch on four main topics my recent trip to Bali and and what I was doing there during my break, an update on the book that I'm writing, Eden, the, the plant-based restaurant I opened in, in Bondi with my partner Tanya, and the headlines about choline deficiency being something vegans should be concerned about, and, and also the headlines about vegetarian diets and stroke risk. So on August 29th, there was an article published in the British Medical Journal, or BMJ, which is a really, really well-respected, highly-regarded journal. And this article was titled, Could We Be Overlooking a Potential Choline Crisis in the United Kingdom? And then what made things a little bit worse was that the BMJ gave extra credibility to this article, which we'll talk about in a minute, by writing uh, an in-house piece which was further promoted, titled Suggested Move to a Plant-Based Diet, Risk Brain Health, Nutrient Deficiency. Now, the narrative of the original article was that the majority of the population do not get enough choline and that given the huge trend of people moving towards a plant-based diet, even more people are in danger of being deficient in choline, a nutrient which is particularly rich in eggs, milk, and meat. The article was essentially proposing people need to eat more meat, eggs, and dairy. Foods that we we know from so much science, from the totality of the science, foods that we know are associated with cardiovascular disease, the number one cause of death in most Western populations, and, and, and also associated with other chronic diseases. You may have seen the article in major newspapers or websites such as the BBC who they ran an article which I have here in front of me titled The Brain Nutrient Vegans Need to Know About. And it wasn't just the BBC. Using a a site called Altmetric, I, I can see that 126 major media outlets globally have reported on this article in just the past two weeks. You know, others include Business Insider, Yahoo News I have here, Men's Health, HuffPost, Daily Mail, Guardian, and The Times. Many of these made it out as if 
This was new science. I'll come back to that in a second. So clearly this would have been read by millions and millions of people. But before we write off a vegan diet, let's take a step back, let's break this article down in the British Medical Journal and also consider it in the wider context of what's going on in the world. So there are a few things that you must know about this article from the outset. So firstly, this this was not a scientific paper. This was an opinion piece written by a nutritionist, Emma Derbyshire. So that's really important. This was not a clinical study. This means that the claims being made are not based on anything new. It's merely someone's review of the data and their personal interpretation. And of course, review articles can be valid and and are an important part of the literature. But an opinion piece is very, very different to say a systematic review with a meta-analysis, for example, whereby a statistical method has to be used to produce results that can then be used to to show cause or effect or a relationship or, or associations rather. This article in the BMJ is literally just taking pen to paper, reviewing the literature with no set structure and voicing a personal opinion. Now, the fact that this opinion piece is really for lack of a better term, simply fear-mongering, it doesn't surprise me for a few reasons. So firstly, recently members of both the, the healthcare system and the food industry in the United States have been able to make three-minute speeches to the USDA Dietary Guidelines Committee who are responsible for the upcoming 2020 USDA food guidelines that will be published shortly. And if you want to watch some of these these videos, you can go on and and watch them on YouTube. I highly encourage you to do that. Some of them are, are quite entertaining. As you can imagine, people with all sorts of agendas take the stand people that show no regard for the science. And the common theme this year seemed to be a push for the egg and other animal industry representatives to push choline as this new nutrient that people must have. Why? Because it's very rich in animal products. There is so much research suggesting for people to minimise their consumption of animal products that these guys need something to cause fear in those that are moving away from buying their products. That happens to be choline this month. It's been iron in the past, and it could be something new next month. They really won't stop. Secondly, as Michael Greger of Nutrition Facts, a previous guest on this show, was was able to dig up via the, the Freedom of Information Act, the American Egg Board recently made it their absolute priority to make choline to be an urgent problem and essentially eggs to be the solution. Part of their story was to use advertorials to promote this message about choline being a nutrient of concern. And an advertorial is essentially a paid spot, which means as the buyer, you can write the content how you want it and have it look like an editorial in a magazine. And in these emails, they talk about using an egg ambassador to write the article so it makes sense that you know, following these speeches, an article is published in a major journal whilst the USDA Dietary Guideline Committee are in the process of writing these new guidelines. And here's the real kicker. This is no different 
to this opinion article. Emma Derbyshire, the, the nutritionist and author of this article, is a nutritional consultant who sits on the meat advisory panel. In other words, she was commissioned to write this article to help protect their interest. What's really interesting is when you post an article and make an update, the original stays accessible. You can see originally this article was posted with zero conflicts of interest and, and then later updated to, to add the fact that Emma sits on the meat advisory panel who received funding from the meat industry. She also consults and advises, guess who? The British Egg Information Service. But let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Is choline something we should actually be concerned about? What does the science say? So firstly, we actually do not know how much choline someone needs. And thus, we, we really cannot say whether someone is getting enough or not. In fact, there is currently no recommended daily intake set for choline. There's only an adequate intake level. Before we go into what those adequate intake levels are, let me explain the difference between an RDI, a recommended daily intake, and an adequate intake. So a recommended daily intake, sometimes also referred to as a recommended dietary allowance or an RDA, is the average daily level of intake sufficient to meet the nutrient requirements of 97 to 98% of healthy people, so pretty much everyone. Whereas an adequate intake level, which is what is used for choline, is established when evidence is insufficient to develop a recommended dietary intake and is set at a level assumed to ensure nutritional adequacy. So the important thing here is an adequate intake level is an assumption. So let's keep going. Stick, stick with me here because we're going to be exploring a bit of science here. And if you need to, pause and rewind it. So for choline, the, the adequate intake level is 550 milligrams per day for adult men and 425 milligrams per day for adult women. However, it's worth noting that this figure was set based on one single study dating back to 1991. And this study looked at a tiny sample of 16 subjects, which compared intakes of 500 milligrams of choline a day to 50 milligrams a day with no intermediary amounts examined. The study reported decreased choline stores and liver damage when men were fed just 50 milligrams of choline a day, and thus 500 milligrams a day was set as the safe level that would prevent liver damage. There is no doubt that consuming less than 50 milligrams a day could result in liver damage. I'm not suggesting that. But it is highly unlikely that a vegan following a minimally balanced diet, just a minimally balanced diet, could reach such low intake levels. The European Food Safety Authority also recommends adults consume 400 milligrams or more of choline per day, yet... Once again, this figure is based on consumption data from national surveys conducted on the average person in the European Union rather than any sort of rigorous clinical trial looking at what the optimal intake level is. These people are also no doubt consuming a lot of cholesterol and saturated fat at the same time. Just because they don't have symptomatic disease 
doesn't mean there isn't asymptomatic disease developing. We know that these choline-rich animal foods cause diseases like cardiovascular disease, which begins as early as infancy and slowly bubbles away or brews away until symptoms show typically in one's fifth or sixth decade. So the, the adequate intake amounts are set because there isn't enough info and it, by its definition, it is an assumption. All we know is 425 to 550 milligrams per day is better than 50 milligrams when it comes to liver disease. But this doesn't tell us anything about intermediate levels between those and it doesn't consider what high or excess intakes of choline may do with regards to one's disease risk. Before we dive into some of these considerations around excess choline intake, let's look at the types of things that choline deficiency causes. This includes neurological conditions such as neural tube defects, elevated homocysteine and thus cardiovascular disease risk, and liver disease. So my question is, how come we don't see vegans in hospital beds suffering from liver disease, neurological issues, and cardiovascular disease at anywhere near the rates of omnivores? In fact, it's really quite the opposite. Rates of cardiovascular disease amongst vegans are the lowest compared to people routinely eating beef, dairy, and eggs, which are animal sources of choline. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is inversely associated with plant-based food consumption. And incidences of neurological conditions such as dementia and Alzheimer's, as discussed with Team Sherzai, uh, in a previous podcast episode, are again associated with animal choline-rich protein consumption. Furthermore, how come children born to vegan mothers are not suffering from neural tube defects and vitamin deficiencies? Again, the, the opposite is true. It's been widely reported in the medical community that vegan pregnant women have a lower than average rate of cesarean delivery less postpartum depression, and lower neonatal and maternal mortality, which means death, with no complications or negative outcomes that are higher than average. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With InsideTracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire InsideTracker store 
To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. While some preliminary findings suggest a, a small link between choline and neural tube defects, Recent research has found no relationship between choline concentrations in the blood of a pregnant woman and neural tube defects in offspring. The references for all of this is at plantproof.com. But I will say, however, until we know more about that, there really really is not enough evidence to, to recommend that women supplement with choline during pregnancy. And in fact, you'll see that uh, choline rarely re- rarely features in prenatal pills, um, though it, it may be prudent for for expectant mothers on plant based diets to to set up their diets to favour choline intake. And rest assured that, as stated by the American Dietetic Association, an appropriately planned vegan diet is considered completely safe. It's healthful and nutritionally adequate, and appropriate during all life cycle stages including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, and adolescence. What we do know about neural tube defects is that folate deficiency is clearly linked with neural tube defects and plant-based diets are absolutely jam-packed with folate. So how come the negative health outcomes associated with choline deficiency rarely manifest in vegans? I think there's, there's two main reasons at play here. Firstly, even though vegans are probably not consuming the adequate intake level, as I discussed earlier, we have to remember this is a very arbitrary figure. And in fact, most omnivores are, are not reaching the adequate intake level. You know, recent surveys have found that most people in the United States, where, where mind you, only 3% of the population is vegan, consume significantly less than the adequate intake level set for choline. Even though vegans are probably consuming even less choline than their omnivore counterparts, it's very, very likely that they're consuming 
more than 50 milligrams a day. It'd be hard to consume less than 50 milligrams of choline a day, which was the intake that was implicated in liver disease. In fact, although choline is more abundant in animal-based foods, it it is also found in a wide range of plant foods. It really is, albeit in, in smaller amounts. You know, tofu, soy, broccoli, quinoa, these all contain good amounts of choline. Uh, so as long as a vegan diet is balanced and it's not calorie restricted, uh, consuming an adequate amount of choline will, will probably come naturally. On the other hand, excessive choline intake has been associated with increased production of a molecule, TMAO, which you, if you're a regular listener, have heard me talk about before with some previous guests, which is a molecule considered to be an independent predictor of cardiovascular disease. That means independent of traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors being present or not, TMAO levels can predict your risk of cardiovascular disease. And there's this really cool study that I was talking to Dr. B, Dr. Will Bolsowitz about uh, earlier this week. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013. And it showed that eating just two hard-boiled eggs, which are very rich in choline, increased TMAO levels within just two hours, significantly increased TMAO levels. This study uh, then gave subjects a course of antibiotics, which is the, the really neat part of this study. And obviously the antibiotics wipe out their bacteria And then they fed their subjects two hard-boiled eggs again after the course of antibiotics, and they saw zero TMAO production. Four weeks later, after antibiotics, when when the gut had sort of partially recovered, they fed the subjects eggs again in a third challenge, and you can see, again, there is a TMAO spike as that bacteria has partially recovered. The egg industry since then funded a study that looked at TMAO post-egg consumption, but instead of looking at the immediate effects after consumption, they measured fasting TMAO levels eight hours after. Um, And we know that TMAO levels drop approximately four hours after consuming choline or carnitine-rich foods and, of course, concluded in their study that eggs do not affect TMAO levels. It's uh, very scary to, you know, to see the kinds of studies that can be designed and published. In addition to TMAO and cardiovascular disease, other studies have shown associations between increased intake of choline and various cancers, including prostate and colon cancer. And, you know, I will admit, I'll put my hand up, in these studies it's very hard to separate whether it's the choline at fault or other molecules in in the choline-rich animal foods that that also come along for the ride. For more information on this, um, please go to the blog that I mentioned. Uh, I published this on plantproof.com the other day, the full list of all references, everything that I've discussed here and more. In summary, I'm I'm afraid this is is nothing but the umpteenth time we've we've seen the meat, dairy, egg industry use well-known and profitable marketing tactic of highlighting one particular nutrient while really downplaying the elephant in the room, 
cholesterol in eggs getting bad press, let's push eggs as a high-quality protein, nutrient-dense powerhouse, and a great source of choline. Saturated fat linked to heart disease in a recent big study. Better push meat as a great source of iron, protein, and vitamins. Sugar in children's breakfast cereal coming under fire. Time to market cereal as a great source of fiber and add a bunch of vitamins to boost the nutritional profile. I think you get the drift. In other words, this is nothing new. Conjuring up a hypothetical choline deficiency epidemic is merely the latest attempt deployed by the meat industry to get consumers to stick to their animal-based foods and shy away from the plant-based movement. So what, what should you do? What should we do? Pretty simple. Get more than 50 milligrams of choline per day. Concentrate on choline-rich plant-based foods and perhaps even pay more attention during pregnancy. It's really that simple and it's, it's not hard to get above 50 milligrams per day. I tracked mine yesterday and, and consumed just over 300 milligrams without even trying. Okay, so that's it for choline. Hopefully you're keeping up. As I said, if any of that went over your head or I was speaking too fast, uh, you can either replay it or find the blog and go through it at your own pace. Now, I normally wouldn't hit two big headlines and, and two sort of quite in-depth science topics in the one week, but I think it's important while I have you to address the recent study on stroke among vegetarians and vegans, um, the Epic Oxford study. Uh, unlike the choline article, this is, this is actually a valid study using a, a validated data set and it's not an opinion piece. So definitely one that deserves a little bit more attention. By way of background, in case anyone missed this in the news, just this week there were news headlines globally, again published by major media players, unfortunately, uh, suggesting that new science, and we'll come back to that, links vegetarian diets to a higher risk of stroke. But again, we need to understand what the science actually says and we need to unpack it and talk about it. Okay, so let's start off by looking at what kind of study was this and what did it look at? Firstly, it's an observational study that looked at 48,188 people from 1993 to 2001. So it is 18 years of data following people. So essentially what they do in these trials is people are registered and they can put them into groups, which we'll talk about in a minute, and they can watch them over the years and measure the health outcomes. What happens to these people? Do they get sick? Do they get disease? Do they die? And if they do, what disease are they suffering from and what disease ultimately leads to their death? So this type of study uh, cannot show true cause or effect like a clinical trial, but it can identify associations. So there is a, there is a place for these types of studies um, and they do have a very important role, but it does really depend on how the data is used. Also really important, this is not new data. It's an old database that has been used many times before. The, the researchers in this study split the subjects into three groups, meat eaters, fish eaters, and vegetarians, which included a very, very small amount of vegans. And they examined 
the relationship between dietary status and ischemic heart disease and stroke. And they found fish eaters and vegetarians had lower rates of heart disease than meat eaters, but vegetarians had higher rates of stroke. Let's take a a deeper look at this study without going too much into the weeds because it can get very, very complex quite quickly. Firstly, it's important to understand that the researchers did not separate vegetarians from vegans as there there were so few vegans, only only 3.8% of the 48,000 people in the study. And this means that the vegetarian data could well be diluting the data from the vegans and, and really the findings from this study were not specific to vegans. The vegans were not studied independently. So despite these headlines reading vegans and vegetarians may have higher stroke risk, it, it needs to be made clear from the outset here that there were not enough vegans in this study, so the researchers lumped them into the same group as the vegetarian. Secondly, I've said many times before, vegans, vegetarian, it's, it's a label that is not synonymous with health. So we need to understand how healthy was this cohort? And if we look at what they're eating, we can get some idea of that. You know, the fiber consumption of the vegetarians, which included the vegans, because again, they don't separate the data, it was very low. And it was similar to that of the meat eaters. They had very high saturated fat intakes, uh, suggesting that these people from, from this cohort living 18 plus years ago did not have the healthiest of plant focused diets and were more than likely consuming a fair bit of processed low-fiber food and lots of saturated fat-rich dairy products. In addition to that, previous studies that have looked at this same set of data, which, which I have access to, they found that the vegetarians in this cohort had low B12 and low omega-3 intakes. So, so really, this population is not a healthy plant-based cohort. But let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's look at what they found. Over the 18 years of the study, there were 1,072 strokes. However, 24% of these, the researchers said, were unclassified. That means they couldn't tell you what type of stroke the subject had had. And when you, you dive in deeper and look at the percentage of ischemic versus hemorrhagic strokes in this study it's actually a long way off the typical ratio seen in general population, which points to problems with the data. Secondly, out of the 1,072 strokes, just 27 of these were vegan, 19 uh, ischemic and and eight hemorrhagic strokes among the vegan population. And when you're dealing with such a small sample size and and small number of cases of stroke, it it creates a power problem and, and, and chance events can affect the data, and this is something that I've spoken to Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai about, who are neurologists who I've had on the show twice now. In other words, you need more people in this study. You need more vegans in this study to reduce the likelihood of chance affecting the data. And finally, as described by cardiologist Dr. Malcolm Finlay, the... This is a quote that I I have in front of me. The the excellent data they present 
show that people who follow a vegetarian diet or just not eating meat were very significantly healthier than meat eaters. This stretches right across the board. Not only did vegetarians have less heart attacks and strokes, but also less high blood pressure, fewer medications, and fewer were diabetics. He then goes on to say, unfortunately, the claim that vegetarians have a higher risk of strokes isn't really supported by the data. And on my reading, this is putting too much weight on a complex statistical method to try and correct for the fact that vegetarians were very much healthier than meat eaters. Let me break this down for you. Essentially, the researchers manipulated the data using a, a complex statistical analysis to, to see if compared to vegetarians, what would happen to the risk of stroke if meat eaters didn't have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, didn't smoke. And it appears that by controlling for so much, there has been an over-adjustment of sorts. And the only, the only thing that I will say about this study, which is interesting and something to keep an eye on, is I saw, I saw Dr. Garth Davis comment on this, actually, is the fact that there has been some suggestion that you know, a very, very low or super low LDL cholesterol may increase one's risk of hemorrhagic stroke. You know, however, in this study, the vegetarian group's LDL wasn't even that much lower than omnivores. Um, and the benefits of low LDL still seem to significantly outweigh any risks. So when you combine all of this, when you, when you look at the, the types of vegetarians in this study, you look at their diet, you understand that there was very few vegans in this study, uh, there wasn't enough statistical power among the vegan population, and, and you combine that with the fact that there are so many other more powerful studies showing plant-focused or exclusive diets reduce one's risk of stroke, various forms of cancer, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, etc. It's really not a study to be concerned by. And even if it was, even if it was, the study itself concludes that although vegetarians had higher risk of stroke, they had lower risk of heart disease. And given the incidence of heart disease is, is higher than stroke, you'd still be better off on what appears to be a pretty unhealthy processed vegetarian diet that I think we can personally do better than. This was something a lot of the media failed to report. Instead, they, they went with the clickbait headlines, which evoke fear and, and public interest. Bottom line, this study was not on a healthy plant-based group. This wasn't people eating a whole food diet like the diet spoken about in previous episodes of the Plant Proof podcast with the likes of Dr. Cordwell Esselstyn Jr., Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, Dr. Alan Desmond, Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai, Dr. Michelle McMacken, Dr. Rob Osfeld, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Michael Greger, etc., etc. And my only hope is that the couple of hundred thousand of people who listen to this show each week, you guys, share this episode far and wide and, and maybe together we can offset the millions of people who unfortunately would have read about the choline and stroke headlines and are now either second-guessing or writing off a healthy plant-based diet when, in fact, they have sadly been fooled by the animal agriculture industry and all the media. What we do need to keep in mind going forward is that 
such articles and misinterpretations are not going to just go away. So please be aware that news doesn't always equal science. The science is actually very clear. It's not about labels. Any move to a more plant-focused diet is a good one for you, your family, and the health of the planet. Quite a bit to follow for one episode, so on that note, I am going to leave it here. Next up, I have Drew Harrisburg returning for a follow-up episode. And then in the solo episode after that, I'm going to cover climate change and our food system, a really fascinating area. I hope you enjoyed this episode and the new format. I look forward to, to doing it again with you. If you did, I'd love for you to take a minute and leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. It'd be greatly appreciated. And as I mentioned, all references for science discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes and at plantproof.com. Thanks, friends. I'll see you in the next episode.